evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this beautifully renovated Borough Hall in Dunoon. It really is uh, a credit to the thought and work that's gone into it. Um, I'm not going to take up too much of your time, but before I start, we will have uh, direct debit forums on offer for those of you who would like to contribute on a monthly basis to the forward uh, success of the, the Yes Movement and the Forward Shop. There will also be strategically placed buckets at various corners of the place in the course of the night. Um, our guest speaker tonight doesn't need a, a great deal of introduction from me. I'm sure she's well known to you all. A background, a very solid background in journalism for almost every major paper in Scotland. Uh, frequent appearances on radio and on television. And with her own, what is it, feisty productions, productions of your own productions. Uh, she, Leslie was involved in the, the fight to try and keep the tower, Castle Tower in public ownership, um, the, the men's hut, and the allotments campaign here. Um, she is also doing a PhD in Nordic studies between Strathclyde and Oslo University, and I believe you still find some time to cycle yeah. after that. <laughs> so the subject tonight... Please join. We, the, the subject tonight will be Scotland's place in a future Nordic, uh, Nordic settlement. I now introduce Leslie Ruddock. Thank you very much indeed. I am glad for a very dog, but I speak a little Norsk, so the rest is in English. Right. <laughs> I had to use that sentence there because that took me two years to learn Norwegian. And then when I finally got to uh, the archives in Oslo uh, for this PhD, and I was kind of in the archives, I got the blue gloves on because I was dealing with historic documents. I was kind of beside myself with excitement. I had actually got a grant from the Norwegian government to be doing this research even. Um, and finally I opened the first books uh, that I was studying and they were in Danish. <laughs> My, how I laughed. But uh, it just shows you that kind of lifelong learning really is just what it says on the can, you know, because actually when you calm down and look at it, Danish and, and Norwegian are actually quite similar. So I managed to stutter on. But anyway, um, there's probably, actually it's great to be in this hall again is the first thing. What a stoting hall. Um, the time that I was here last, uh, we were just remembering, was, was launching the, the Castle Tower community buyout bid. Uh, what a shame that was. I mean, shame on the council. Shame. Um, but not shame for you. You know, I know people have been thwarted and felt. It just the trouble is it brings, it, it makes it so difficult for people to imagine a better life. When the people you elect and the institutions around you are wrong-shaped and are stopping initiative, then the fact that so many people in this room can still see past that to better possibilities is a great tribute to everybody here. Um, I can tell, John, you're going to be my big fan all night here, right? So kind of just, just keep, it, keep it under control there, my friend. Um, so anyway, that was the last time I was here. And as I recall, there was near a back wall. I can remember thinking I've never actually done anything where there just isn't a back wall. And it was strangely mesmerizing. I don't know if you remember it. <laughs> the kind of flapping curtain, you know, behind the nothingness of the back wall. So, I mean, this is extraordinary now. And uh, just well done, everybody that was involved in it. Um, 
there's plenty of things we could talk about tonight. And I, I can kind of well imagine, you know, we've got the endless Brexit nonsense. We've got um, Scottish Labour kind of just, I don't know, yet more stabbing themselves in the front uh, when they could be moving a little bit behind Jeremy Corbyn and so on. There's plenty of stuff that's happening. But, I mean, in many respects, that's weather. And what we need to think about is climate change. I mean, some transformational change for us. And to, to kind of get yourselves oriented, that's where um, I've been very busy kind of going around the Nordic countries because seeing is believing. And uh, when you begin to spend a lot of time in small northern countries who, I mean, if anybody thinks they're remote, you're not remote. Uh, try, you know, the Arctic regions of, of any of the Nordic countries for genuinely remote. And yet, for those of you who've been there, you'll see that they've actually got phenomenal infrastructure, much better than stuff that's sitting cheap by Glasgow. We have accepted a sort of um, a, a substandard Scotland, a, a substandard life in many respects, um, which, which really hinges on an awful lot of, of things that are missing in the setup of how Britain works. And Scotland has been a part of Britain for a guy long time. So what I'm, what I'm trying to do um, is to sort of try and get our thinking changed a bit, um, to look a little bit at what our Nordic neighbours have done, because actually when you realise the posse that we're sitting in the midst of, it's breathtaking, truly, what the possibilities could be. Um, if we just start off, first of all, with the Pharaohs. Has anybody been in the Pharaohs? It's always, I think it's like everyone's last Monroe, the Pharaohs. I only got there last year. And they truly are amazing. This is 18 barren little lumps of rock that are stuck between Shetland and Iceland. Tremendously isolated. Um, what they've got going for them? Fish. And yet the Pharaohs, at the time, population 30,000, were given the world's most powerfully devolved parliament in 1946. And this is worth knowing because it's the reason that they are out of the EU whilst Denmark is in. And that's worth knowing because we get given a line here that it's one singer, one song, one size fits all. And that actually speaks volumes about the kind of country we live in that cannot tolerate diversity and doesn't believe in different paths. That's weird. I mean, we don't like it, I guess, a lot of people are in here because that kind of rankles, but it's weird. And what we need to get is how exceptional that centralized state is in the great scheme of things, because we're not sitting with neighbors who think like that. To go back to the pharaohs, um, in 1946, they decided to become independent from Denmark. Now, that's a short sentence that is mind-blowing in what it really means. This is 30,000 people. What's the population of Danun and Kilmun? And you stick the whole thing together, what do you get? Just over 10? Okay, what are we going to do? Danun and Rothsey? Right, I know you're probably a bit funny about me putting Rothsey in the same sentence, but let's say Danun and Rothsey decide to become independent about 100 miles from the Arctic. That's kind of pretty brave. And that's what they were going for. They had, a, they had a referendum in 1946, and the result was 50.7% yes. And that kind of put the cat amongst every single set of pigeons, because it sort of flummoxed people. It was a marginal vote, um, but it really flummoxed the Danes. 
And the Danes did something that I don't think the British government could ever do, which is they realized they had to persuade people to stay. And so that's why in 1946, um, the Faroese were given this incredibly powerful parliament. Okay, it raises its own taxes, all the things you would expect from a truly powerful parliament, but it also runs all its energy resources, which is, would have been in our case an extremely powerful thing, and it's got control of telecoms. Now that we thing might seem not very big, um, but what it means for them is that the Faroese have got the world's fastest 4G coverage. The Faroes. And how did they do this? Um, I'm glad you're sitting down because this might be a shock to your system. The Faroese government told Faroese Telecom to do it. I mean, I know that's fiendishly kind of simple and kind of offensively simple to what we have learned to understand as the necessary bureaucracy and privatized nonsense of how we go about tasks. But Faroese Telecom took the job made it bespoke to the islands they were in because, hey, again, don't get up because this is a heady one. They live there. And what they produced was 4G coverage that covers all the 18 islands, even as as kind of isolated as they are, but it also goes out to 200 miles, which is the self-declared limit of fishing that the Faroese declared, so that all the fishing boats are on 4G and up to the height of the helicopters that service the fleet. And when, when I was kind of slightly bowled over by that, they said, but why wouldn't we do that? That's our world. Whew. Now, that's my normal. I'm making that my normal. I'm refusing to accept the way we behave as normal. It's weird. It's counterproductive. It's perverse. It's the tail end of a discredited way of operating And we have to think differently. And it's easier to think differently when you see people working perfectly easily with better models because seeing is believing. Anyway, um, the Faroese also have a university that teaches in their own language. They are now a heady 40,000 people. And they teach in their own language in schools as well. They've got a very good sense of themselves, the Faroese. And the reason that their situation exists so particularly is because they were given one final cherry on the cake when it came to their parliament. They were given, in 1946, they were given the right to sign international treaties. Now, the next time anybody starts coming our way with Scotland being the most powerfully devolved parliament in the world, ask them if we can sign international treaties, because we can't. And that was done in 1946. Ooh, that's kind of quite a while ago, isn't it? So actually, that was a norm within the Danish state for a very long time. So that's the reason that in 1973, when motherland Denmark decided to join the EU, same time as Britain was doing it, the Faroese took one look at the common fishing policy and went, nah, that doesn't need a for us. Um, Apart from anything else, they would have to let other nationalities into their waters. They just weren't having it. And like us, they have a mixed fishery. I'm slightly at a loss to see what what seas do not have mixed fisheries. With a quota system, that is just a recipe for discards. Um, So there was all sorts of reasons the Faroese just didn't want to do it. And, and, And here's the thing. I see that some of us around here were kind of knocking about in 1973. 
you'll remember nobody died. There was no stushy whatsoever. The Faroese went their own sweet way. Denmark joined. The Faroese didn't. It was fine. Um, And when Greenland got the opportunity to follow the Faroes, when it was given the same sort of power of parliament as the the Faroes, um, in 1982, first thing the Greenlands did, out of the EU. And that's for exactly the same reason, because of the fishing policy. And that's the reason you might have heard in the discussions that happened while we were all still kidding ourselves on that Theresa May might ever listen to anybody about anything. Um, You might have heard discussion of the reverse Greenland, because basically Greenland left the EU while the mother state was still in, while we would be staying in while the mother state was leaving. I mean, all of this, you know, you get had up with detail. Um, And I read a tremendous piece by an Irish writer who said um, that that is actually one of the distinctive ploys of the British state, is to get you stuck in detail so you didn't stand back and think about points of principle. The point of principle at stake was that um, a small territory with a defined set of interests could have a parliament of its own right up to the stage of signing international treaties and it would still be okay. So that's those guys. Um, Further north than them, the Icelanders are also famously not in the EU In fact, the Icelanders had a big impact on the Faroese because in 1944, the Icelanders decided to become independent. Um, The mother state, Denmark, was occupied by Germany, so basically they weren't in much of a position to argue. So the Icelanders, who'd been wanting to become independent for a very long time, just basically declared UDI. 1944, Ofsky. So that really is why the Danes were absolutely determined when they had the chance to deal with the pharaohs differently, they were determined to hang on to them. Not because they were too worried about 40,000 pharaohese folk, the 200 miles of fish, and potentially what was to, to ever, ever else was to come. So Iceland. Um, anyone been to Iceland? Aye, it's a marvellous place, isn't it? Um, they're mad. I mean, and I say this in a really... They are incredible people. Um, half their DNA, the male DNA is largely Norse, the female DNA is largely Celtic because they basically stole women all the way up the west coast from Ireland to uh, the Western Isles. And of course the Norwegians, who are much more rational people, um, think that it's that Celtic streak that caused the crash in 2008 because the Nordic bit would never have been that wild a child, you see. But um. But actually, they are really quite extraordinary people. I mean, Iceland was discovered three times before anyone stayed. Uh, it's, it's a pretty difficult place. Um, the second lot who came back to Norway, and you'll know this, the Viking slogan is, Vikings don't go back. So, you know, going back to Norway when you've sort of been off to find new lands, that was a bit, bit embarrassing. So um, the, the line they gave was that they'd found this land, but nobody could possibly live there. It was an ice land. It was, there was nothing habitable on it. Those of you who've gone will know that that's not true. Iceland's actually below the Arctic. It does have glaciers, but so does Switzerland. Um, in fact, it should more correctly be called lava land. A third of all the lava flows on Earth have flowed on Iceland. Um, and for that reason, it has finally got to be able to harness the massive geothermal power that's, that lies there And that really has been part of the story of Iceland's success. Um, But the Icelanders looked at uh, 
they looked at trade with Europe, and they ruled out joining the EU early doors. We had um, a, a conference, Nordic Horizons had a conference last year with speakers from all the Nordic countries, and the object was to explain how many different ways, this is one of my mother's ones, there are a skin a cat. I mean, that's a terrible expression. Where did that ever come from? But I mean, the point is, we've got this one way of doing it, and actually, the Nordic countries have dis- discovered all sorts of different ways to have relationships with Europe, depending on the interests of their nation. And they have spent time creating a consensus so that there is absolute agreement about what those strategic interests are. I mean, funnily enough, we're sort of getting there in Scotland. You'll notice that Ruth Davidson, on a good day, actually wants to stay in the single market as well. Um, So, you know, there is that same thing happening here. But they have a much keener sense of their, their national interests. Anyway... Um, we, one of the speakers was an Icelander called Jon Baldwin Hannibalson. And this guy, if I'd actually known more about this guy before I introduced him, I wouldn't have been able to sit beside him out of sheer awe. Um, I should say, this guy, Jon Baldwin, took Iceland into um, the halfway house that is the EEA. We'll explain that in a minute. But perhaps his bigger claim to fame is in 1991, Lithuania... Uh, declared independence. And within days, the Soviet troops had come in and 14 people were dead at the TV station. Uh, It looked like that little flickering moment of the Baltic republics flexing their muscles and creating freedom was about to end. And a wee guy got on a plane in Reykjavik, flew to Lithuania, went straight to the heart of all that trouble and formally recognized Lithuania as a state on behalf of the 250,000 people who live on Iceland. I mean, it's extraordinary. Within four days, other countries had recognized Lithuania. Within six months, it was a member of the UN. The next thing that happened was Latvia, the next Estonia. And each time, the first formal recognition of independence was made by Iceland, by Jon Balvin Hannibalsson. I mean, what a guy. Um, Estonia... Uh, Their foreign ministry is is now located in one Iceland square, so they don't forget. And the Lithuanian parliament has a plaque right at the entrance to it, thanking Iceland, who came when others did not dare. 250,000 people. That's what you can do when you're focused, when you're independent. Um, The the, the reason he went... I was quite staggered. I was, I was researching this book and was determined to... to um, John Baldwin is writing in the book about the Icelandic experience. And I just wanted to put a bit more about each of the writers in because we didn't know them. So this is how I found this out. He doesn't go around telling everybody. Um, and I said to him, why on earth did you feel you had to intervene? And he said, well, you know, what was happening at the time was that the Western um, allies had basically decided that Gorbachev could do what he wanted because the big prize was to make sure that Russia didn't slip back into communism. And small transgressions like killing 14 people in Lithuania or in fact flattening all the Baltic states' attempts to become independent, that could sort of be overlooked in the greater scheme of things. And the Icelanders thought, no. I mean, one, that's wrong. And two, we are a little country. We need other little countries. It's in our interest to make sure that that kind of diversity 
thrives and that the interests and independence of small countries is a big issue. So that's the reason he said, I had no choice. I got on the plane. Well, blow me. What a guy. So that's Iceland's attitude. And you can believe then that when Iceland approached the idea of what relations it wanted with the EU, um, there was no real enthusiasm for becoming part of the uh, European Union. Um, First of all, they had this big problem with fish again, because most of their economy is dependent on that. But as Jan Balvin said, they hadn't spent 600 years trying to get out of Danish colonial rule to be hand in powers back to Brussels. Now, that might have some resonance for people in certain other respects, but that's how the Icelanders saw it. And a more independent-minded, I mean, cussedly independent-minded bunch of people you simply couldn't come across. Um, of course, after they had the crash, they did have a short dalliance with the thought of joining the EU, but by the time they'd stuck some bankers in jail, well done, um, and reversed an awful lot. One of the first things they did as soon as they traded themselves into any kind of profit as a nation again was that they doubled child benefit. Yes. What did the Finns do when they responded to the crash in 2008? They trebled research and development. Yes. These are the kind of people we need to be knocking about with. These are our kind of guys. We need to learn these sorts of lessons. So there's Iceland. Um, however, sitting slightly lonely as a cloud in the middle of the Atlantic with a lot of geothermal energy and quite a few aluminium companies as well, um, Iceland did feel the need to have some kind of trade deal with uh, Europe. And so Jan Balvin, as well as saving Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, devised the EEA. This is the science bit. It lasts 30 seconds and it's painless, right? Um, but basically... When the EU was starting off in the 60s, 70s, there were two kids on the block. Not just one trade club, but two. There was the EEC that became the, e, the EU. And there was also EFTA. It's still there. That's the European Free Trade Association. Now, these guys, EFTA, didn't want to integrate, didn't want to have a currency, didn't want institutions, didn't want any big fandango. They just wanted trade. And actually, although they started off with nine members, all of the Nordics plus all of the Alpine states, curious bunch, actually, the way, way that one worked, um, the sort of muesli crowd, basically, um, they all peeled off uh, and joined the EU with all its burgeoning institutions and everything. That seemed a lot more powerful and interesting, except for four states, who are now the EFTA members. That's Norway, Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Switzerland. Now... Of those, those four, three of them want to have access to the EU single market. That's a wee bit like maybe you're a member of a club, some sort of gym thing, and you occasionally want a day pass into a swankier one to impress your friends or go to a, I don't know, something kind of dead hot like a jacuzzi or something. Um, you want to be able to have access to a different club. Well, three of them decided to pay through the nose for that, and that is the European economic area. What that is, is the three EFTA people who want to be in the single market, I haven't got enough fingers here, but the 28 soon to become 27 members of the EU, together is the EEA. And you can't get into the EEA without being a member of EFTA, and you can't finally get into the EEA without the approval of all the EU members. Now, at the moment, there's kind of a lot of sabre-rattling going on about Britain potentially becoming a, a member there, 
because that would seem to sort of satisfy the crazy uh, desire to be both in and out of things at the same time. Um, But actually, it would need the approval of every single EU member to do that. Now, it's possible, but I don't know about you, it just strikes me that an awful lot of people are pretty pissed off with uh, Britain at the moment, and the small EFTA countries do not want it. Iceland is biddable. Norway is implacably opposed. Even though it has a conservative government, it just would wreck their world. So there's one line-up for Scotland. Um, If we were to become, when we become independent, if we were to think of joining EFTA, that halfway house, there's a posse. What do you get? Well, you get that you can have access to the single market. You get to share research funding that still goes on in the EU. You don't end up having to have visas to travel everywhere because you have to observe freedom of movement. Um, You don't have to join the customs union. And the don't-haves are quite important. You don't have to join the customs union, which would be useful for Scotland should a Brexited Britain also be out of the customs union in the future. You don't have to be a part of the common agricultural policy. And if the Scottish government ever starts to mean business about land reform, um, it might consider that the gravy train of common agricultural policy subsidies is in large part shoring up the large pattern of large distant uh, control of land and farming land, which is making a mockery of democracy in Scotland. It's not to say that the the, uh, subsidies are to blame. It's that we have, as you know, 432 people or interests owning half the private land of Scotland. It's an outrage. It's the most concentrated form of land ownership in the developed world. It has changed hardly one iota since I remember starting to campaign about this way back in the days of Assent in 1993, really. Um, and th- that those subsidies shore up a bad pattern for us. So a moment where we were able to decide differently how to allocate agricultural subsidies, it sounds boring, it would be revolutionary. And if, if I had my way, it would be a new town council in small councils that would have that sort of decision-making power. Would that increase the number of people that voted locally? I think so. Anyway, I digress. You don't need to be a member of the common agricultural policy and you don't need to be in the common fisheries policy. Now, um, the Norwegians are in a similar boat, like they're in that halfway house. The Norwegians, the, the, the Icelanders joined and never meant to go further because they didn't intend to become EU members. The Norwegians were certain that their population was going to vote yes. Uh, This kind of shows you that living in a capital city can get you awfully distanced from other people, even in a right-on place like Norway, because when they had two referenda, one in the 70s, one in the 90s, on each occasion in Norway, 70% of people in Oslo voted to join the EU and 70% of people everywhere else voted not to. And because Norway has for a long time had a 10 cities policy, where it has very consciously promoted growth all over the country and has also got some of the most um, fulsome subsidies for small family farms, um, there's actually loads of people outside Oslo. It's near a wilderness out there. There's more folk. 
So it was a combination of farmers thinking, do you know, the only way is down. We join the EU and the kind of really big subsidies we get, stay on the land, have family farms, they're all gone. Um, And the fishermen likewise looked at it and just thought this is a really bad idea. So the Norwegians voted to stay out. And that's where their politicians saw the usefulness of a halfway house. Well, is it? Um, In Norway, the EFTA, the EEA, Uh, where they have to abide by all the regulations of the EU but are not instrumental in making any of them, people grumble, to put it very mildly. It's it's referred to in Norway as the Nike deal. Just do it. Because Norway complies with 98% of EU regulations, which is a higher proportion than Sweden, which is a member of the EU. So it's not that you get out of the regulations, far from it. Um, You are subject. If you're trading with the EU, you simply have to knuckle down and get on with it. But Norway's fishing industry is vibrant. It is employing far more people than Scotland. It is not pillaging the oceans. It is observing conservation. And the fishermen, the conservationists, the academics get together and decide what the quotas, they don't operate on a quota basis, decide how they will manage the seas. The result is that they have something like two to three times higher uh, stocks than us in key species. And of course, the sea doesn't observe a border. So it's in their interests for us to get our act together too. So they have quite a strong interest in the Scots getting control of their own fisheries again and managing them better. But managing them better means stopping thinking the way that we have done for quite some time. So right, this is a long way round saying there's a possible deal, folks. If we were to join EFTA, the halfway house, there's our new chums. We realise our reality as a North Atlantic state. We are. We are in the North Atlantic. Our interests are there. The world's interests are there. These plucky little countries of 40,000 and 20,000 and a glorious 300,000, which is all Iceland is today, are guarding the Arctic against the depredations of the likes of America and Russia, who both have skin in the game thanks to Siberia and Alaska. Is that not another scary thought? Not just that Trump has his finger on the nuclear button, but he's got access to the Arctic Council as well as a member? So the little countries, the same way as Lithuania in 1991, little countries the world over need other little countries to stand up and get on with it. And when I was in the Faroes, um, I was speaking about Scotland, Brexit and independence, and I was astonished that there was a crowd almost the same size as your own gala selves uh, arriving on a Tuesday night in in, uh, Torshaven, which is their their capital's town, And um, I asked them what was the big interest in all of this. And one guy put it really well. He said, for us, Scotland is a sleeping giant. It's not a wee place. If you're sitting with 40,000 people in your world, you know, Scotland's got roundabouts. (laughs) Lots of them. You know, we've got forests. We've got unbelievable amounts of stuff. Really mind-blowing assets. Huge numbers of universities. They've got one. From the point of view, from the perspective of the Arctic, where the future resources of the world are sitting, 
We are the next big thing. In every respect, physically, democratically, they're waiting. They're waiting for us to wake up and realize the power that we have and the people that we should be aligned with. So there, there's one possibility. That's the EFTA club of the North Atlantic. Um, but actually, the great thing for independent Scotland is that it doesn't just have one option, it's got two. Now, you know, it's extraordinary that politicians and, and the media can portray this as a problem. You know, we've got two possible options here, and we might have to think about what the best one is. Lordy, lordy. Well, the other option is pretty tasty as well, actually. I mean, we talk, if you, if you look at the other extreme, going right over, it's not the right way for you, right over to the east, in the same way that fish has been the governing factor for the North Atlantic states of the Nordics, Russia is the governing factor of the east. Um, you, you may know that the Finns um, had two incursions, wars with Russia to try and retain control of an area called Karelia. Um, unbelievably, they managed to fight off the, the Red Army the first time round and were the stars of the Western world. Churchill described them as heroes and uh, praised their sisu. That word entered the language then. Sisu means smedum. Um, then the Russians came back and they lost that territory and decided to go back in to get it back with Hitler. Now, that was a bad call. Um, they paid for it. They ended up having to make an agreement with Russia in 1948 to pay back whacking great loads of reparations. Actually, the Americans, everybody was kind of feeling a bit sorry for them because they entered none of the battle for uh, Leningrad or the big cities. They only occupied the bits of land, which actually nobody else would even have thought was important. But um, they were offered Marshall Plan money, and they refused it. They decided they were going to pay their debt and they would not be helped out. And they paid it back in kind. What was the biggest thing that they ended up developing? Mobile telephony. Now, so that, you know, about 10 years ago, you would all immediately have gone, right, Nokia, how, how the mighty are fallen. But that's where Nokia began. It began through the obligations that were being paid off to the Russians. So the Finns have had their are blooming resilient people, but they have also been very conscious that they are living beside a difficult neighbor, shall we say. Um, Ludovic Kennedy was quoting Pierre Trudeau, I think, when he talked about um, Scotland being in bed with an elephant. And he wasn't really trying to be unpleasant about the English. He was simply talking about relative size, 5 million versus 60 million. Um, Canada in the same position with America. Well, if those countries feel they're in bed with an elephant, Finland is in bed with a stegosaurus. It is a massive country that is constantly expansionist and unpredictable. Um, so the Finns realized uh, they had independence in 1917. They're about to celebrate that 100th anniversary. They realized a key part of staying independent was being neutral. So they have that in their constitution. They have a constitutional bar on membership of NATO to say to the Russians, look, honest gov, there will never be an American base on Finnish soil. You don't need to worry about it. It's not going to happen. The Swedes are the same. The Swedes have a constitutional bar. That's how important neutrality is to those Baltic states. So 
For the Finns, where is their security policy? They can't be a member of NATO. That's why they are such keen members of the EU. They joined the EU. They're the only Nordic country that's also joined the Euro. They are believers. Um, the the uh, connection with the EU does lots for them in terms of foreign policy. It anchors them to a Western mindset, which they're very keen to keep. Um, and it makes them think of themselves as a kind of modern social democracy. So for the, for the Finns, that's the reason why for them, being in the EU works pretty big style. Now, who knows if it came push to shove, if there was some incursion into Finland, would the EU rush to fin- Finland's defence in the same way as NATO members are obliged to do? Fakens. But there's a very strong likelihood of it because the Finns have been very vigorous members of the EU. And you'll spot that when you're keen on something and you get wholeheartedly involved, like the Irish, who, let's face it, have milked the EU for decades for every blinking penny they could get out of it, foxy folk that they are, um, people like you. People consider your problems their problems. People decide that when there are discussions with a neighboring state, your problems are number one on the negotiating list. So the Finns are probably right to think that they have got a posse should things go wrong, although should Russia ever decide to invade Finland, we'd be in a very different ballgame. In any case, that would be a huge issue. So that's why they're doing what they're doing. The Swedes were very doubtful about the EU, and it's strange that actually across most of Europe, the parties that are very pro the EU tend to be right-wing. Lefties tend to be suspicious. They tend to think it's a rich man's club, um, and they have kept their distance. But within Sweden, which of course has been an extraordinarily lefty country, um, in the 1930s it created the People's Home, and some of that was modelled on the beverage report in Britain and our welfare state, But while we let that atrophy and die, they have expanded it and understood the thinking completely. So Sweden has the smallest pay gap in the developed world. Britain has the largest in the OECD. Uh, So the Swedes looked at the EU and thought, hmm, if we join there, our standards will probably be pulled down. Now, that again is a small sentence to say and a big thing. Those of us of an age, again, will remember the dark days of Margaret Thatcher, sorry to mention it, when the only thing that was kind of speaking to a different set of values was very often the EU. The working time directive, I mentioned it at a meeting in Dunbar, in Denny actually, a couple of days ago, and a guy came up and said the first overtime he ever earned was after the working time directive was implemented in Britain. This was a huge difference, this kind of outlook where you should not be worked to, the, to, to, to death in a workplace, where you should have time off for bairns. These kind of things were just so straightforwardly true for the social democracies in the EU that they put forward a framework most Scots would have given their eye teeth to have as the fundament of our welfare state. So I think actually that a lot of the kind of 62% that voted to stay in the EU, a lot of that for people my age and older is because we remember that. We remember the different framework that the EU had of values that spoke to us. They were like a big sister for a while, 
for as long as it could work. So think about that. We look at their maternity, paternity, environmental protection, all these kind of things, and think, wow, that's gold standard stuff. The Swedes looked at it and thought it was too low standard for them. And that speaks volumes about the difference in our societies of what we've come to expect. So the Swedes were very dubious, but eventually um, in the late 1990s, after the Berlin Wall had come down, that worry about Russia had slightly dipped. Their own economy was having problems, and they thought that trying to get sort of socialism in one country wasn't really cutting it. They needed to try to expand their thinking into the EU, so they joined. And um, you may not know that you know, but their current deputy prime minister is a massive fan of the EU. She is a woman called Isabella Lovin, and you may have seen a picture of her uh, that was tweeted widely around the place, signing an executive order with all her female ministers behind her as a brilliant riposte to Donald Trump and all the heavy guys behind his one. But what was she signing? What she was signing was an executive order that was committing Sweden to redouble its efforts to combat climate change. And believe me, there's probably no country on the planet that's doing more already. Why? And why her keenness on the EU? What she's saying is that America is out as a thought leader for the next five years. In fact, let's be honest, it's probably been a AWOL for a wee whiley. Who is going to start picking up the big issues about climate change, about migration, about fairness of divvies up of the world's resources? Who will take the lead on any of these issues? She's asking, if it's not the EU, we're going to make it work. And you listen to a young woman with that level of idealism in a country like Sweden and you think, by gum, would you not like to be beside that? Well, there's the lineup. You've got Denmark beside them, which joined the EU the same time as Britain. Actually, they've been kind of thrown. They've had more referendums on aspects of, of EU policy than anyone but the Irish, and they've had a right number. Um, but they're still there. And after Brexit, there was all sorts of gloomy predictions that all these countries would then suddenly have their own exits. They haven't. They had polls which suggest that roughly 60% of people are still okay with the EU. Yep, they want some changes, but they want to keep that solidarity together in the face of a fracturing world. So here is Scotland's other possibility. Um, the lineup, the back four, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Scotland. That's tasty. Again, these are the kind of people we need to be talking to more. Because they have been places we need to go. And the extraordinary thing, for any of you who've been to any of these countries, you'll know, is that people are so willing to help. I've been running Nordic Horizons for six years and inviting people to come over here. Not once has a single person asked for a fee. They may be here for two or three days. They contribute their time because it's kind of the greater good. Now, this is an extraordinary time to be alive and to be in the run-up to independence because we are sitting beside like-minded siblings who have been there in every single respect, who have got models that we could really learn a lot about that we're half getting to anyway, who now speak English better than we do, let's be really honest about it, which is a big bonus ball, 
And partly, that's the Norwegians uh, decided they didn't have a big enough film industry, so they imported all the British sitcoms. So if you learnt your English watching a combination of Faulty Towers, Monty Python and Father Ted, you can say that their their colloquial English is pretty blooming good. Um, But these nations are there to help us. And there is no reason why a nation that has actually got probably more of an asset base in terms of energy assets and and other assets uh, than any of these other countries, there is no reason why we shouldn't be looking in a medium-term way to be joining them. And so we've got a choice. It's a brilliant choice. It's a choice that would be the making of us, whichever way we choose to go. But the thing we have to do is try to think that that is the point of all of this. If we get scuttered down so that our ideas about independence get ground down into what day will the referendum be called or what will we call the campaign or what structure, these things are important. They really are important. Um, And I'm a member of the Scottish Independence Convention. It's an umbrella group for all the yes groups. Have we got our own house in order? No, we haven't. Have we got any money? No, your forward shop over there has got more cash than we've got. Do we need to do something about it? You're blooming right. But all the time, we've surely got to remember that our sight should be just like that window that's changed at the back from a big gaping void into something beautiful. That's where we're going because we've got pals. We've got possibilities. And coming back finally to Jan Baldwin, Hannah Balson, the redoubtable old trout himself, Uh, when he was asked if he thought Britain could join EFTA, he just said no. And when someone else said slightly tremulously, uh, because he doesn't take much nonsense, what about Scotland? He said, you're a perfect fit. So we've got possibilities. Let's just go there, decide what we need, and take them. Thank you. Well, thanks very much indeed, Leslie. That was stirring stuff and also very true. The only people we have to uh, not blame, but we have to move are our own countrymen and countrywomen because that, what Leslie has just talked that's exactly how it is and that's what you should be aiming for. We're going to have a short break now, 10, 15 minutes, and we'll be taking questions from the floor when we resume. Okay, don't forget the buckets, boys and girls. You want to put the buckets out? And uh, we have uh, some uh, papers, what you call it, direct debits, for those of you who are not already contributing to the shop. If you wish to join us, be more than welcome. Thanks very much. See you shortly.